Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Work Stoppage. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you want to head over to patreon.com slash workstoppage and throw us a few bucks, we really appreciate it. Don't forget to get in the Discord and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, just in case that's still a thing search engine optimization cares about. Uh, we are joined today by a very special guest, uh, Kyle, a.k.a. Labor Kyle, from many places, a labor historian, uh, union organizer, and all-around cool internet person. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing very well, particularly since I have joined you on one of the good podcasts, capital G, capital P, trademark, <laughs> uh, copyright, etc. That's right. Uh, no, I'm just happy to be here. Hell yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you. I, I know Kyle from just being around Twitter and shit, basically, and also uh, I was lucky enough that he asked me to do a short voice clip in one of his recent videos, which I was really proud to do. Very cool. And as you might not hear, uh, Dan is out this week. That's right. Dan's on vacation. Something yeah. every worker should take. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, I think we're actually going to start with a follow-up on, on something we covered. I think it was last episode where mm -hmm. Colorado had passed this law that said that everybody had to post the wages of the jobs that they were posting online. And many businesses were trying to opt out by saying, oh, yeah, we offer this except for in Colorado. But there was actually a dispute at the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. And uh, they said that you can't just uh, opt out of labor law. Yeah. Uh, which is which is good. And But the funny thing about this person that is discussing this is uh, Scott Moss, who is the director of the Division of Labor Standards and Statistics in the CDLE, uh, basically saying, I don't understand why these businesses think that they can just exempt themselves from labor law. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it, you know, he, he seems like a person who has his heart in the right place, but really doesn't have his brain in the facts. Well, I mean, he's got the right spirit. I mean, he did go go on record in saying, like, if there is just one person living in Colorado and working for the company at the time of the job posting, then a salary range has to be included in the job opening. But I understand where you're coming from. Like, it is a little naive to think that, like, you know, to wonder why uh, companies would try and skirt this. And he even has a couple of quotes in here where he talks about, like, it's it's such a little thing. It's such like a token gesture that the um, that the company would have to do. And he's like, it seems like it doesn't cost them anything. I'm like, dude, it's costing them a lot to have to post all of their salary. Well, and like what we said, one of the things that we said last week is not only does it affect the um, like smaller uh, rank and file workers, but also if they ever put executive job postings up, those listings also have to have wages on them. So to actually put on paper what people are making does give a light to a lot of the contradictions that exist in labor in general. Yeah, there's this sort of domino effect. There's a domino effect of sorts when it comes to the uh, like shedding necessary light on the Distrib distribution of profits from within the company to where you got it is very funny to me i i do i see where you're both getting at in particular about the well-meaning naivete of this particular person who is uh you know, expressing a level of curiosity. Why would something that's so unbelievably easy to do that wouldn't necessarily cost anything? Well, you know, it, it's not the, the dollars and cents aren't always about dollars and cents, right? It's about mm -hmm. like 
the it's about the projections of potential conflict loss and like really what what will happen when we have to reveal the necessary information across the board rather than just in this kind of piecemeal as we want way like you you, you had pointed out in this article that they're they're looking to reach out in a, in a non-adversarial way which is which is it's descriptive of the sort of type of environment the two different worlds that the people who are it, the world the, the world that all of us live in uh, which is shrouded by ambiguity and difficulty to actually, you know, kind of, you know, see what's going on at the very top. And then this very like preschool kid gloves, like hand holding <laughs> that is like labor. Labor law is really just about the vibe. Right. You know, right. it's not about <laughs> enforcing or like enforcing a regulation that would ultimately have adverse effects on the business. It's about asking nicely and about just crossing your fingers that, you know, everyone play. Everyone wants to play by the rules. Surely. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there there have been people who have been commenting on this, like this group, Colorado Excluded, which is a website that tracks uh, the type of postings that we're talking about here, has found 125 companies that would not consider an applicant from the Centennial State. And in total, 279 job listings have been confirmed by the website with links, which is interesting. And I have trouble uh, triangulating where the motivation for this group is coming from, whether they're trying to say more of these companies need to list their job salaries and comply with this, or whether they're like a right-wing group who's saying like, look, this rule is forcing people to not hire in Colorado, which is like, mm. I'm not really, I, I can't quite tell, but it is interesting that it's like so widespread. Like I, I hate to give away my own naivete a little bit, but it's like, I did think that maybe there would be a more even split on companies that were willing to, you know, go along with this new regulation. And it seems like almost across the board, and maybe this is just speaking to the intensely libertarian character of a place like Colorado, but across the board, they seem to be uh, rejecting it and, and openly trying to circumvent it to the best of their ability. Yeah. Uh, so what this, uh, the, the Scott Moss has said about the, um, CDLE and what they're doing, he said, so we've been reaching out individually to these employers in a cooperative, non-adversarial way to make it clear that remote jobs need to post pay if you're a Colorado covered employer, regardless of any preference you might express towards the state's, uh, (laughs) applicants are, aren't from, right, right. So it's saying, basically saying that. Uh, you know, we we're trying to we're trying to have a peaceful relationship. We're trying to have a non-adversarial relationship between uh, the the workers and and the boss. You know, it, with this is this can be done, and this is just kind of the classic thing that we've we've covered so many times about the way that labor law is kind of framed by this. Uh, I mentioned before Alinskyus kind of labor peace view on the way that things should be done that somehow there is this this way to reconcile the way that the the jobs are versus how work conditions are and how it's not a, actually as the, the contradictions don't matter or or whatever they're trying to say but but really again this just kind of um speaks to the kind of people who are in power uh in in like people who are supposed to be protecting labor and how they genuinely don't actually stick up for labor most well, of the time it's how they get uh, duped by the logic of capitalism you know like in the in the quote that you were referencing earlier kyle he says if i were a shareholder in a company and spending thousands of dollars in legal fees to avoid telling applicants uh 
to avoid telling applicants that it will tell them when they offer the, what is this he, he, the way this guy writes is really like it, it's, I don't a, it's a little confused but it, like he immediately goes to the perspective of like a shareholder at the company which is like i don't think that as a mm-hmm. union organizer or somebody who is in any way trying to fight for workers rights you should even be remotely concerned about like shareholder profits or dividends or anything like that it's it's just taking place on a really absurd layer of politics that only seems relevant in a place like the United States. Right. And it's it's accepting that there is like it, it's OK that we're taking the the workers uh, value and we're distributing it to quote unquote shareholders. It's like, well, you know, I can imagine myself as a boss. And uh, if I was a boss, I'd be like, you know, maybe I should be nice every once in a while. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, it's just- it has these like there's this there's this sort of trickle down of thought like this sort of estuary between these, like, cause the companies that are being referenced in this article are, are huge, huge, huge mm-hmm. corporations. And you see, you see very familiar language that you have a tendency to encounter this, like it's constantly there. There's, there's a layer of individuals who maybe do feel as though they, they can see themselves in the position of a shareholder at some point. And then there are, the sort of like from, you know, very large companies to very sort of small shops, one could say there's the uh, sort of the, the logic of a sort of restrained generosity from the, pe- the people who own everything. Mm-hmm. And they apl- they have a tendency to apply. Like, that's really what it is. It is a, it is a, a capitalistic logic that is supposing that any individual person would, despite all of the other motivations that they have in the position despite that they have, despite the sort of reinforcing discourses, if you will, uh, it, that come with the, o- the only way that you can get into a position like that in the first place is your willingness to compromise on very fundamental values. Mm-hmm. And we give everyone so there's so much space to just be like, well, I would, well, I, well, I, I'm not trying to be adversarial, surely. Well, I'm not trying, I'm trying to be a good boss, that sort of a thing. And when there's like, when our fundamental imagination lacks an ability to like, look beyond the boss as a thing in like either, I either like you look at it either way. You either personalize the workplace to the point to where like you actually apply some level of ethics to how the the, func- the function of your corporation, or conversely, if you depersonalize it and just think about the general dollars and cents of it. I mean, there there are so many motivating factors that are going to like a, a, like a a level of fundamental fairness that is like within the sort of economic mode that we're kind of forced with now has had, I guess what I'm trying to say is had irreparable damage on the imagination of almost literally anybody in these types mm-hmm. of situations. It reminds me of the, you know, people thinking that they're just temporarily embarrassed millionaires and billionaires or the the classic Futurama one where Fry is like, uh, Fry, you're not rich. Why are you protesting with this? And he's like, well, I'm not rich now, but when I am, people like me better look out, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also, you see it manifest in like the typical uh, American, uh, like common wisdom that like, oh, if you just, you just wait, you'll get older, you'll see how the world works and you'll come to experience that this is the way of things and like what that means is like either you'll get older and you will experience some opportunity that will let you exploit other people uh and then you'll you'll come to love that for some reason or you will just be beaten down hard enough and long enough that you will just be like okay this is my station in life and those are really the only Mm -hmm. two projected outcomes from that kind of 
wisdom. But I mean, speaking of uh, the conflicting relationship between the workers and the I guess I could use this segue for, for any every uh, article, every every uh, <laughs> article on this show. But we wanted to talk briefly about Voodoo Donuts. So this is Voodoo Donuts in Portland, and uh, workers have been fired after striking over 95 degree heat inside the store. And some of you may have seen this going around on Twitter because I think it was making the rounds like four or five days ago uh, during the crazy heat wave where like power cables were melting and like trolley and public transportation lines had to be temporarily shut down because it was so hot in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, These Voodoo Donuts employees were posting photographs of the temperature inside of the store, and it was in excess of 95 degrees. At times, uh, employees were facing potential heat strokes. They were getting hives. They were getting dizzy. They were, you know, it's it's unacceptable to have to work in those kind of um, conditions. And Max Fleischer from Voodoo Donuts, a, a former worker there, told KOIN 6 News he was fired from Voodoo Donuts on Thursday. He said the extreme heat created an unsafe work environment. He has pics of thermometers from inside, like I told you. And uh, he said the very first second you stepped up there, you know, you just started sweating. That was probably the first sign that it was a bad thing. Then as the day went on, you would slowly get more and more exhausted. It's super frustrating. We know that it's a protected action. It was unsafe in the store. And he's referencing the strike that they briefly engaged in. Uh, Like I said, people were getting hives. People were getting nosebleeds. And we were very concerned about the heat. Yeah. And this is exactly the same kind of behavior that we saw, you know, during COVID with people being forced to work in completely, uh, you know, unsafe environments during a pandemic. And it's just been stepped up. Now we're seeing it with the consequences of natural, you know, weather phenomena and things that are being spurred on by global warming. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and uh, this they they've actually been they I think it was last year or earlier this year, they had tried to organize with the IWW. Uh, which is That's the right. reason why there is the Donut Workers United. The the union does exist. It's about whether or not it's been uh, accepted by the company. The company obviously has not accepted it. And uh, but the reason why they're able even able to do this strike to to go out there is because they have that education and there is a union. I mean, there the way the idea of saying that there isn't one would say that this action couldn't have happened. Right. So I, I always want to remind people the union is the workers. And yes. Yeah. And that's that's the whole that you that's the that's the exact thing that and y'all emphasize this on your podcast quite a bit, which is really, really important, is that like it, and a solidarity union isn't even just, you know, you are the union because you are the you are the union because a union is a collection of workers. But even more mm-hmm. so than that, a solidarity organizing is is predicated on using existing labor laws in order to. You do direct action in the workplace. That is federally protected concerted activity. And he's mm-hmm. exactly right. The the worker that was being re- that was interviewed in the article is exactly right because there are any there are a lot of things that are considered when when two two or more whenever two or more are gathered in one place. I was raised by evangelicals, mm-hmm. so I <laughs> like to make that joke a lot. Uh, there 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 are certain actions and things that you are allowed to do. If there are un, if you have concerns about health and safety in your workplace, and in in this case, it's not it's not even just about the working conditions too. This is food distribution. It is not safe to have food that gets to temperatures of ninety five degrees. That is not safe for the customers, for the consumers, anything like that. But you mm-hmm. are it, protected concerted activity is absolutely covers like problems about health and safety in your in your workplace. So it's an unlawful firing. 
And yep. it's just like it, it's it's ridiculous to see it any other way. But I mean, it's something that, you know, it's something I've heard in your podcast right. before as well. I believe there's a there's just a, a dearth of knowledge when it comes to like because we ran into it down here. I organized with the I, I am uh, just about to wrap up my last term as the secretary treasurer of the central Florida IWW. And when we were organizing with restaurant workers down here at the Dandelion Community Cafe, that was the thing that we, that was the most empowering thing that we had encountered the most is just that the lack of knowledge of what you can do that is actually protected by federal law um, is, is just something that people don't really expect. You know, we just don't know because we're told not to, pursue that information right 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 and the idea that these people are fired is supposed to be just accepted like the, yes. you know you, you can't do that you've been punished and and the, that retaliation is acceptable well a lot of times i feel like yeah. we're only even lucky enough to hear about these labor stories when one or more workers who have been involved in these actions are legally or otherwise savvy enough to realize that they've been unlawfully fired and get some kind of legal group behind them to you know in this case fire a uh, complaint with the file a complaint with the oregon bureau of labor and industries in some other cases it amounts to suing the company or you know any number of other actions but a lot of times this stuff goes under the radar because especially if you're like an undereducated worker let's say it's like your first job out of high school or whatever other reason you just never got a class education or a legal education you could get fired for this kind of stuff and be like well that's it time to go find a new job and then that's the end of the story and employers feel empowered to get away with that kind of stuff especially in a post-covid environment you know they can say they're firing you for any reason yeah and speaking of thinking they can get away with it i mean voodoo donuts even gave us a statement or gave the gave a statement that says employee and customer safety is our highest priority obviously not true (laughs) uh if we felt that either were at risk during this time, we would have adjusted operating hours and otherwise made sure everyone was safe. People's noses are bleeding. They're like, they're, right. they're suffering heat exhaustion. <laughs> like clearly this company doesn't give a damn. And I, I, I don't know. It's just a classic. It's, I don't know. We can go over it uh, with every single company because every single company is going to do this. They're going to say, well, yeah. we did what we were supposed to do. I mean, it's, it's like how Amazon has the most unsafe warehouses in the country and it's just like, no, this is fine. Uh, right. And for smaller businesses, like now Voodoo Donuts has a lot of locations, but here it's something that like organizers are able to capitalize on, funny enough, because oftentimes uh, when we have when we have the knowledge of federal labor law, we know how to organize using protected concerted activity. We know how to basically protect ourselves while organizing for the stuff that we need in our workplace. You, like, I, listener, you may be surprised at how much of a dumbass your boss is. Uh, <laughs> that's sarcasm. Uh, this is a, an audio format. That is sarcasm. We all know, we all know that they that they just they really don't know what they're doing. And now it now they always have a lawyer on retainer. And so, but when we organize amongst ourselves and we basically do organizer training and we learn labor law and we read Stoughton, we read the Stoughton Lynn book and we do mm-hmm. what we, we do exactly like we prepare ourselves for when this is this is just a good example. I'll, I'll be I'll be brief. But I'll, that cafe that I was talking about earlier. So uh, when the, these workers were with the workers at Dandelion had almost 100 percent of their entire workforce on board 
they were going to do what we call a march on the boss. And for listeners who don't know, it's basically when you you come up with a list of grievances in the workplace and you 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 put them in written format and then you have people who are in support of the organizing effort sign on. And then you basically put it's usually a simple demand. In this case, it was we want an all staff meeting to address a few problems that we're having in our workplace. Um, If you want to talk to one of us, you need to talk to all of us because we are a union and that is and everyone gets on the same page. So if they come up to you while you're working and they say, hey, come step back into my office and say, is this in reference to the things that were delivered during the petition? If you want to talk to me, then you need to have an all staff meeting, that sort of a thing. So these right. workers had almost everyone on board, and the worker that they didn't have on board was supportive. He was just, you know, some sometimes people get nervous. He came on board eventually, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. But you know, we we don't hold that we we don't hold that against them because you know usually they end up supporting anyways. They uh, in their group chat for they had they had a group chat. Homebase is the program that they used, which is basically how the boss and all of the workers communicated with each other related to shifts and like. It's a restaurant, and they, they're also a vegan place. So these are people who had a Black Lives Matter sign on their door, by the way. Right. Watch out for the libs. They will yeah. screw you. A boss is a boss is a boss, even the most quote-unquote progressive one. Um, well, they, they right. organized for over the better part of a year. They decided it was time to march on the boss. They marched on the boss. Uh, well, actually, they, at, they asked to have a meeting to address, to address all of this stuff, and they said, hey— uh, they they picked a representative for the workers. This this worker's name was Jen. She's wonderful. Shout out to Jen. I'm sure she'll listen to this. Hell yeah. uh, uh, and she decided that she was going to go into home base and request a meeting for it. Say, hey, I've been chosen as a representative for my coworkers, and we would like to have a discussion about some problems that we have in our workplace. When is let us know what a good time is for you, and we'll be in touch soon. And they fired her immediately. They fired wow. her that hour. And this is what I'm talking about when the bosses have no idea what they're doing because you cannot that do that. very illegal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredibly not allowed. And it was it, we the, basically it turned into and then after that there was a lockout and all like a whole bunch of really complicated stuff. They ended up closing the business for good. It went they went nuclear real quick. But in the process of going nuclear, they committed. We we filed two separate unfair labor practice charges with them with the NLRB that had a litany of like line item charges, um, of which they basically like had to settle on all of those. And the reason why is because they, when we prepare ourselves ahead of time, it gives us. And this is what Voodoo Donuts I think did. Like in for all for all the struggles that they've had, but all that they've done good has been in educating themselves and organizing as tightly and as just as effectively as possible because so often they just they do not know what an unfair labor practice is and the fact they don't know what it is until after they've already committed it. They don't right. know what it is until they've gone and talked to their lawyer after they you've organized your entire workplace. And so it's just this is a, an incredible example of that, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, and yeah. one thing that uh, if we could, before wrapping this article up, I want to you know say to the listener is when you see these grievances, write them down, time like timestamp them. That is one of the strongest ways that you actually are able to like get your demands met is because you will have examples. You'll have like literal points in history that you can refer back to and and say 
you know, this happened this time and this was unacceptable. And, right. and when you continually document, you build up your case and it actually adds to the way that you are protected because you are doing a concerted activity because you know what issues that you're protesting. Absolutely. So, the perfect perfect that's that's the perfect thing work journaling in your workplace not only does it protect you now not only does it bolster your organizing campaign but if stuff goes south and we're ended you're talking to the national labor you got you're talking to an organizer and they're prepping you to interview with the national labor relations board because you filed an unfair labor practice you're going to sit down with an officer from the nlrb usually very supportive very nice you know shout out to some of the people in the tampa office who were you know really like very patient and are there to document what happened. If you are keeping track of everything that the boss does, that it seems to be or is straight in violation of your rights as your right to organize, then that interview is going to go much, much better than it could have because you have line items to say on this day, they did that on this day, they did that. And you're just documentation and knowledge and documentation. This is just, it's, such good organizing stuff here that you know people should pay attention to this is really great like when you journal and you keep track of stuff like that it will only help you in the future really 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 good thing especially if you're a person like me who tends to have a shoddy memory when they're put on the spot to remember specific details about things being able to just whip out a notebook and be like okay here's all the stuff uh, that's got to yeah. be an enormous help. Uh, but yeah, like relevant to so many of the same issues that we saw in the um, voodoo uh, case and in the uh, case that you were talking about, Kyle, uh, what was the name of that restaurant again? The Dandelion Community Community Scare Quotes right. <laughs> Cafe. <laughs> yeah, Community Cafe. I mean, like, wa- again, watch out for companies that brand themselves like that. We saw that with No Evil Foods and plenty of other yes. cases. But relevant to so many of the same things that we're talking about, especially unified, uh, uh, unitary uh, worker demands, I want to talk about a case where Trader Joe's, everyone's favorite uh, Aldi-sponsored Whole Foods alternative, is once again trampling all over workers' rights. And this comes from a Jacobin article that is mostly just an interview with Alex Pham, uh, who works at the flagship Trader Joe's store in Pasadena. And I have here an enormous uh, laundry list of quotes from him. I promise I did try to edit it down as best as I could, but every line was a banger. So it was really, really difficult. Um, And he he has quite a few things to say about this. And I'm just going to read what I think are some of the most important paragraphs here. Uh, He says, people referencing the workers in the store became increasingly unhappy as the pandemic went on. Crew members, which is what Trader Joe's calls workers, found management dismissive of their concerns and more interested in keeping the operation going. At our store, for example, the sanitation policy was drawn up locally by management who are not qualified to make public health decisions. The cleaning protocols we had in place weren't adequate and couldn't be followed because we're cleaning while customers are shopping. Many people ended up using their own accumulated leave to stay home and they felt like they had to put their families members at risk by coming to work. Uh, there was a corporate representative who did a store visit at another location and the tape on the floor to enforce social distancing wasn't adequately spaced, nor were customers following it. When crew members brought this up, the corporate representative told them not to be dramatic. <laughs> 
And of course, these reps are able to work from home. The way that Trader Joe's wound down benefits such as higher pay and determined that the pandemic is over have been unacceptable too. He also says they did the right thing on health insurance, suspending eligibility requirements during the pandemic that followed workers' demands, including from a group called Crew Members for a Trader Joe's union, which called for hazard pay. But Trader Joe's response to some demands included huddles that were basically captive audience meetings. The company even sent a physical letter to every crew member from the CEO, which discouraged people from unionizing. And then I'm going to briefly paraphrase a bunch of the other stuff because there's quite a bit of it. They gave them thank you pay, which was a $2 uh, raise an hour, but it was actually turned out to just be some of their pay was being taxed differently so that it was in this exempt from this thing in case they ever had to like give the employees back pay. They wouldn't be you know responsible for that $2 an hour. And then eventually after pressure from the workers, they bumped it up to 4 and then they immediately turned around uh, and started trying to dial down COVID safety precautions in the store in what seems to be obvious to the workers there was a little bit of theater meant to demonstrate that if the, if the store, if you could shop in the store like COVID was over, then they didn't need to give the workers COVID you know, bonuses and, and higher pay and everything in the meantime. Uh, and there's a bunch of other stuff in here, including that they sent out a like a questionnaire uh, where the workers were supposed to send their their issues with the company on a one-to-one basis to the company anonymously, and the workers decided that they would develop a form response that they would all send in unity. And then upon receiving that, management panicked and started pulling people into the back room uh, and saying things like, one, asking to check people's phones, and two, saying things like, we're getting survey responses and they're verbatim to that document, which is muddying the waters, to which Alex responds, <laughs> how could seeing the same answers come up again and again be confusing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So Wild. there's a lot going on here. This is like ticking every box of like everything we've talked about leading up to this point relevant to, uh, you know, the, companies like this trampling over workers, except that, of course, Trader Joe's is not a relatively small business. They're incredibly large business, uh, but they do also tend to brand themselves as being like, I don't know, the crunchy, woke liberal, sophisticated, you know, grocery store to shop at for people who can't afford Bezos's Whole Foods. Right. And the, so if, I, if I'm correct, a lot of those uh, thank you pays or what should be called hazard pay uh, right. has actually been repealed. And in place mm-hmm. of it have been the they've been so kind as to do the maximum raise for all the workers, 50 cents. Right. And so and so even re- I mean, regardless of performance reviews or whatever, that's also performance reviews are bullshit, too. Right. But now they're getting a 50 cent raise that I mean, based on how much they are paid, which I'm guessing is anywhere between ten dollars and sixteen dollars. I mean, I don't know. I don't have it. But just knowing that industry, that's that's how much people are paid. And mm-hmm. and 50 cents doesn't mean shit when it comes to the way that you need to live your life. I mean, those this is these are not good living wages these are not ways that you can actually sustain yourself in 50 cents though it may help you know get you a a meal or two a year is not going to be enough to actually bring you up to a living standard that is that is that would give you dignity uh so i mean they have just done some of the shittiest practices that that really are just a a smiley face sticker i always i I like to use that analogy but they like they just love the (laughs) smiley face sticker on on the boot that they're gonna kick you with yeah absolutely the average pay i think for a trader joe's worker in florida where i am right now is about 13 dollars an hour 
which okay. is higher than some of the like pay across that industry and in, in like grocery store workers, food service in general is abs- is absolutely abysmal here. But like I live right now, I'm moving in a couple of days, but right now I live in Orlando and uh, Orlando is filled with service industry jobs and food service jobs and stuff a lot like this. And the average, the cost of living in Orlando, particularly for housing, has gone up so precipitously over the past 10 years that now the average price for a one-bedroom apartment in the city is about $1,400 a month. Uh, and so when you get, th- if you make $13 an hour and you get a 50 cent raise, you're still, that's still poverty. Yep. Absolutely. And to say otherwise is just like, it's almost sadistic in the way that they, that the, the, the way that the, like it is the it is a level of corporate gaslighting that is unseen in so many other industries. Like I mean, it's kind of that way across the board, but it's just so ridiculous the way that they say in comparison to other industry, other uh, to people who are competitive in our industry, other employers, we actually pay more than they do. Well, guess what? You, you all pay terribly. Right. You're, exactly. You all suck. Yeah. That's the long and short of it. A, yeah. Competitive wages is is just a, it should be a dog whistle for we don't give a fuck about what, like about your actual living conditions. Yes. Always that. And kind of like the sister company. I know that in the United States, at least they're separate companies. I, it's kind of muddy the relationship between Aldi and Trader Joe's in some situations, but like I, Aldi is, in both Pittsburgh where I recently lived and in West Michigan where I live now is advertising on their windows like now hiring competitive wages 1275 an hour and like 1750 for managers and I'm just like that that might be competitive wages but that's not by any stretch of imagination good wages exactly and and, and then we see further in this article um it's another case of like a worker happened to have a relatively good labor education and was able to spot an NLRB settlement in New York that Trader Joe's actually had to settle on. And he says in this interview, at this point, we saw the NLRB settlement in New York. So I called the regional office. I knew we'd been wrong. I'm the name on the charge. The charges correspond to the four lines in the notice that Trader Joe's had to post interrogation of employees over protected concerted activity, surveillance or creating the impression of surveillance, making threats of unspecified reprisals and making coercive statements. And he said, we had the best possible outcome for the NLRB process, but in and of itself, it doesn't have teeth. There are no fines, for example. I didn't think that the company would be fined or disciplined in any way, but I thought that it might at least get management and corporate to chill out, which it did eventually do. And then this is such a funny line. Our management keeps holding pizza parties and tastings now. (laughs) But when you file a charge, the charged party receives a mailed copy. And you could tell the day it arrived at both corporate and my store, people in management were on edge. And then he goes on to said that they originally posted posted the notice which they're required to post on the lowest clipboard in the break room right above a trash can which often overflows with garbage meaning the stuff near it gets covered in shit and then he contacted uh, the compliance agent and eventually they did force the store to post it on a much more prominent clipboard but it's crazy that even just for little things like that you have to continuously fucking needle them uh, just to get them to even remotely comply with the, the spirit of the regulation here. Right. I mean it reminds me of organizing at the place that I, I was organizing at many years ago when we were trying to get a union bulletin board because our po- posts kept getting taken down. We were always we were posting, you know, suggestions for meetings or people's rights. We put, you know, lots of stuff up on this on this board, and that was consistently taken down. And but then when they when we finally were 
in the bargaining par- process and trying to get this board up, they were like, well, how about we put it way back in the farthest back part of operations where we also keep all of the workplace safety stuff? And we were just like, fuck no. No, we're not going to put up with it. Nobody goes back there. You're just trying to hide this information. We get it in the break room and we get it up on the main wall. Like, and, yeah. and we d- we did win that one. But the thing was, it's like when they find just like in this, they said, OK, well, you can have the, the board. But it has to be hidden. And, right. And, you know, you have to tell them to fuck off. That's Yeah, we're going to put this thing right right at the front door where the customers can look at it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. There's just a little bit of a wrap up on this, which is uh, the Jacobin interviewer. It's a really long interview, and the interviewer only asks two questions. That's like how much meat and potatoes there is to this story. But... Um, the interviewer asks, having experienced the company's response to protected concerted activity, how do you think Trader Joe's can be forced to change? And this guy, just an absolute uh, fucking badass, comes out and says, my expectations are pretty low. Nationally, there are efforts to organize. The most democratic approach would be to allow the people involved to determine what that looks like, meaning whether it's formally unionizing or not. We've seen that there are a lot of approaches to direct action that don't involve unionization in the formal sense. And then he lists you know, some stuff that's going on in Los Angeles with the UFCW, uh, and possible collective direct action in combination with institutional means like the NLRB or OSHA. Uh, but I think he expresses a really, really reasoned amount of skepticism in relying on institutions like that, especially OSHA. And he says all these things matter and they're best in combination with each other, but we're not going to get anywhere unless we continue to act in solidarity with each other and we need to be strategic. It's not enough for people to want to work collectively or even to unionize. Corporate entities like Trader Joe's with help from gigantic law firms are ahead of us in a lot of ways in terms of intel and strategies. So we need to be strategic, not just enthusiastic, which is like guys really hitting the nail on the head here. Yeah. Exactly it, isn't I, it? Yeah. I think that 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 segues very nicely into our next story because skepticism mm-hmm. is something that I think is really important to go into this next one with because it really seems uh based on like the headline and the way that it's written that these companies that we're going to be covering have done something to stand up against Amazon. Well, what has happened is we there were two different companies in Portland, Oregon that were delivery companies where their only contract was with Amazon. And they had a grievance where they were like, we actually cannot keep running based on the practices that Amazon is doing, whether it be the insane workload, the amount of pay, the amount of pay that Amazon offers, and then some other conditions, which we'll go over. But they ended up closing their doors. And that really does seem like, oh, wow, that's a fuck you to Amazon. Well, there are 115,000 drivers this com- these two companies together represent 600 and amazon is not interested in making any concessions to these to these people who have said we can't afford to stay in business based on amazon's practices but let's get to the actual details about it because i think it's a kind of important um it the way that Amazon is this this is a last mile company. In fact, one of them is literally called Last Mile and the other one is called Triton. They they close their doors because Amazon is consistently changing the ways that the the workload is for any of these drivers, which, you know, some days it'll be like, oh, there's only 200 packages for for this set of workers and then the next day it'll be 350, 400 and they they have no consistency. Additionally, they were trying to get caps 
for the actual amount of time that these drivers were out there because uh, these the inconsistency of these shifts cause uh, them to go from like uh, eight and a half hours all the way up to 10 hours per day doing these driving routes. And right. well, in these conditions that you're referencing, Lena, these are one to one directly controlled by Amazon. Right. The way that these companies are structured, and this is kind of the crux of the whole issue here, is that Amazon is able to dictate the exact way down to like how many drivers, how many packages, how many routes. And all of this stuff is sent supposedly weeks in advance to the company so that they can manage for it. But Amazon is given the unilateral like latitude to change any of the demands that they have of these companies at the last minute. Now, Amazon reimburses the companies for the actual driver routes, which is to say that if Amazon says that they need like, you know, 4,000 packages delivered by X many drivers, and then at the last minute they say, oh, it's actually 1,500 packages by like, you know, a third of that many drivers. Now they are no longer reimbursing the company for the two thirds or however many drivers that are no longer going out on those routes, but they still need to be paid because they were still on the schedule. They still come into work. And the problem is, is that like in even and this isn't just affecting the drivers, like this is affecting management at these small companies too. Nobody is able to uphold their end of the bargain because Amazon, the linchpin of the entire financial pipeline, is deliberately, you know, acting um in bad faith and and uh, assuming all of the profit and taking none of the the losses when there's like a a dearth in 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 package deliveries that need to go out. And I thought that one of the conditions that was super illuminating because these are these are contractor companies and we've always said that these contractors are there to obfuscate who's actually responsible. And in in this case, it's actually more so than any other, than other times where Amazon has the ability to fire individual employees at these contracting facilities. They actually basically have hiring and firing power. The only thing that these companies even really do is hire. They, They probably don't even really have firing power. It's probably only Amazon. So the obfuscation is, is even less so, but also still there are all of those legal protections that they are afforded by the separation through the contractor status. But if they're really able to just fire people, like just like, oh, this person isn't uh, they they didn't hit their quota for a week or whatever. And the boss at the company is like, well, you know, I understand you know, maybe you're having a tough time. There's family issues. You're trying to protect your family from COVID or whatever. This is the, the reason is, though, that does not matter. Right. Amazon can still just fire these people. There is no like local it's it's not it's it's worse than like the franchisee uh method, which is also just another bullshit like obfuscation contractor style method of running a business. Sure. But but these these contractors don't actually have any control over the work conditions. They basically are just a, a middleman name so that Amazon can avoid any sort of responsibility. Amazon has more money than God, which means that what they're able to do is essentially duplicate something that I'm sure lots of people are familiar in their own workplaces, where there's these additional layers of of supervision. There's supervisors who don't necessarily like we find this in some organizing campaigns, how like it's really about who has the hiring and who has the firing power when you're trying to determine who will be part of either a bargaining unit or a solidarity union or any of that kind of stuff. And what's mm-hmm. so interesting is that like and it really goes to like the unbelievable amount of power uh, that Amazon has 
in terms because they're able to duplicate that, but literally on the level of an entire company, an entire company that is created just to essentially manage and distribute their like a workforce. They're they're a shift leader, but it's a corporation. Right. And it's just it's there's so much it's related to like Amazon doesn't have to worry about like the the thing that makes Amazon worry is when people like can get on and kind of start smelling their bullshit. But the thing is, is that like when it comes to when it comes to this is why this is why it's 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 a really big change and something that everyone I'm sure who already is. But if you're not like everyone needs to be paying attention to, which is the way that Amazon it like, you know, the we have the entire the entire work, the majority of workforces in private industries in the next, you know, 15, 20 years are going to be controlled probably by like three companies. And Amazon is definitely going to be one of them. And right. what they do is they they have so much money that they can essentially farm out all of the necessary responsibilities for both maintaining their workforces, expanding their workforces, firing workers for whatever the hell reason that they want to, and preventing efforts at union organizing. Because like we in the United States, we have we have an entire industry that exists purely to stop people from organizing unions. It's called union avoidance. And for mm -hmm. listeners who aren't familiar with the union avoidance industry, it's basically this kind of like like this kind of like trickle down bootlicking that like it like basically it gives every corporation the ammunition, the necessary practices, ammunitions and, and usually attorneys to intimidate uh, to basically intimidate and create these sub substantial departures from the actual reality of what it's like working this get like corporate gaslighting and they right. and they bring you into captive audience meetings and they tell you about how unions are just going to like steal all the money from you. You could actually lose money from your wages and all just this load of crap. Like it reminds me a lot of what happened in Chattanooga uh, with the VW plant in 2019. It reminds me of like. I think a lot about when Boeing put out a Super Bowl ad in 2017 to warn people against unionizing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like this this is when it comes to the amount of money that we're dealing with in opposing these people, it's limit it's it's basically limitless. And they're going to be able to like continue to farm out responsibilities or to basically create shift managers out of entire corporations and it's really yeah. only to get going to get worse. You know? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. The idea. Yeah. Shift shift manager out of out of entire companies is a really good way to illuminate the way that this is being done. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's the upward striation of everything. They they want to like stretch out these lower management positions and turn them into uh, quote unquote regular management positions. And at every step along the way, you get like the status of the higher position and the pay and benefits of the lower position. So they're just like gradually impoverishing. They're no, they're no longer satisfied with just trampling on the regular workers. Now they have to trample on the lower management and proletarianize them, trample on middle management and turn them into lower management. It's just always this like weird mm -hmm. pulling down and, and stretching of, of the class relations in the country. Yeah. And, and all of these grievances that we have from these two companies come from uh, letters that they sent to Amazon, which also had some demands in them. Uh, they outlined their grievances, such as the cutting routes without notice, unevenly distributing workloads among drivers, lowering reimbursement, uh, and all of that stuff. And then they demand 
uh, as a condition for doing business with Amazon again, including a limit on packages and stops, an eight and a half hour cap on delivery routes, a commitment to at least 40 routes per company and $20 per hour per driver and $36 million to compensate laid off drivers for damages to both companies, which are great demands. But I have trouble believing that in an economy where Amazon relies on 2000 different delivery companies that they're going to uh, bend for for two in the Portland area. Although we might, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe the Portland Metro is this important for them. It's hard for me to see exactly where the dollars and cents are in Amazon's calculation here. That's why I was saying I wanted to go in there with that one with skepticism just because I, I don't have a lot of confidence that these companies are going to get anything. I'm guessing they're just going to be thrown aside. Sure. Yeah. <sighs> well, I I want I we were kind of running the gambit of all of the different ways that you can have a relation to your labor in this episode, <laughs> whether it be, you know, an IWW style organizing some some bosses who shut down a company because they can't deal with Amazon or Frito lay workers who have actually kind of been um, left by their that by their union, the BCTGM, the Bakers Confectionery Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers Union, uh, and they were basically told to accept this contract, and the workers were like, no. And now the company is like, well, the union said they were going to accept the contract, and now these workers are going <laughs> on strike. And the company has basically stated, and maybe I'm skipping to the end, and we'll get back to the details in the middle. The company said that because union leadership re- recommended the contract, it doesn't anticipate any further negotiations in the foreseeable future. Well, oh boy, these. <laughs> 600 workers have gone on strikes as of yesterday, Monday, because uh, we're recording on Tuesday the 6th. Um, and and it's really awesome to see these workers be like, no, this is our union. We are the ones who decide whether or not we accept a contract and we say no. And don't, I don't care um, what what the, uh, you know, these these basically, you know nearly scab style uh unions are are saying that we have to do right so these workers were operating under a two-year agreement which ran out last september and has been extended through this most recent sunday uh and this was a common practice through COVID's first year where unions were frequently convinced to extend their contracts instead of negotiating during the pandemic as a way to avoid making concessions uh related to the pandemic and the um what, what's this guy, Benaka? Uh, Mark Benaka, a business manager for Local 218, uh, said about the call for a strike, it was very decisive. It is obvious we're far apart on the discretions forced on employees over the last 10 years. Basically, they're not going to take it anymore, which is kind of interesting that we have a, a rare moment of unity from the rank and file workers, union representatives, at least this one, Mark Benaka, and the actual overarching company, which is just like, okay, clearly there's a disconnect between the union leadership and the rank and file right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And, and of course, is... you know, what else would you do in that situation except strike? Like that's the yeah. opportune time for a wildcat. Right. This is a, a classic example of labor peace being pushed by a union saying, well, actually, I think that we should quote the uh, can the vice president of Kansas AFL-CIO <laughs> okay. in, in relation to this. It's kind of a last line of defense in reference to the strike. And it's a hard decision because it affects many, many people. Union members don't want to do that, but we. D- but when the company fails to f- 
uh, do fair negotiation at the bargaining table, and history has shown Frito-Lay has repeatedly failed to do that, there is no alternative. Now, now I, th- I really think that the language here is very misleading, because as, as most people know, the tagline of this episode is labor peace is not in our interest. Right. They, this is saying that like nobody wants to go on strike. Well, and that's kind of true. It's kind of true. But really what this person is getting at is that that the union, the overarching, like the parent union, the AFL, doesn't want to go on strike because it doesn't show good faith to the company. Though the company right. has consistently shown bad faith to the workers. And, and and I don't understand where, well, I mean, I, I do based on some history, but wh- why these unions think that there is an interest in labor peace, why there is an interest in not going on strike. Uh, right. I mean, well, especially it, when you examine the particular conditions at this plant, like the things that they were specifically going on strike over uh, were listed in this um, CJ Online uh, article that I believe is an opinion piece written by one of the workers, uh, where they detail some of the conditions, like making us work in dense smoke and fumes during and after a fire, because as they stated, it's just smoke. Uh, when a coworker collapsed and died, they had us move the body and put in another coworker in the line to keep the line going. During the COVID-19 lockdown, a coworker's father passed away in another state. They told her since she, there wasn't a funeral, she didn't qualify for bereavement time, and she had to take two of her own days off to grieve. We worked during the entire COVID-19 quarantine while office personnel worked from home. We didn't get hazard pay, bonuses, rewards, or recognition. We worked through the deep freeze, struggling to keep warm and keep everything running getting forced over and into the weekend again while upper manager received a recognition award for his quote-unquote dedication to come in on his weekday to keep our plant running. How you fill our warehouse, because of course this is uh, addressed to the company, so it's how you fill our warehouse with carts of cardboard and product blocking walkways, exits, and work areas. When we point out that it's not safe, you shrug your shoulders and say it's push week. How you bring in inexperienced temporary drivers leading to two injuries, one of the major and numerous accidents including a hit to a major structural beam, bending it and damaging the forklift. The fact that you offer paternity leave to all employees except those at union plants and the fact that your negotiator told us that it isn't Frito-Lay, it isn't that Frito-Lay can't afford to give us raises. It's that he is here to protect the stockholder investments, which is like, you know, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not striking because like they asked for a 50 cent raise and the company said 40, like they are striking for incredibly serious and imminent, uh, you know, workplace safety and, and health issues. And anyway, if they were striking for 50 cents instead of 40, they'd still be right to do so. Uh, (laughs) there's like, what's important here. And like what you, you've both like very effectively like pointed out, like, Right from the jump, so good on you. The, the, what's what matters so much here is that there is there is legitimacy and power in the rank and file strategy when it right. comes to even when like many of us are like I'm a I'm a dual carter with union redacted while I make some trouble within that union. But like mm-hmm. there is like there are, there are existing mo- for for anyone who needs a job who's literally looking to try and get into a I think I, I'm someone who thinks it's perfectly fine to go out of your way to try and find a job with an existing union contract because it, it means the pay is going to be better, the benefits are going to be better and you have a framework through which you can rely you don't have to rely on yourself in order to protect yourself and to get the things that you need at work. If something goes south, well, you have you can call your local, you can call your rep, you have a shop steward, you have someone that you can go to and like 
you you have some like a reliable line of defense for what you need but like there's a there's endless numbers of problems from within business unions that aren't going to be addressed unless rank and file mobilization continues to happen I think I go back immediately to the UPS contract that was ratified by the Teamsters in 2018, which mm-hmm. was a contract that was voted down by the union itself, 54 to 45, if I'm not mistaken. 54% of uh, Teamsters working for UPS voted against this contract. Teamsters actually have like a like a one worker, one vote sort of a thing. But the problem is, is that up until this past convention, they had a two thirds rule. So regardless of whether or not the major- a majority of workers in the Teamsters thought that this was a sh- this was just like not a good contract that this we don't want this we want to continue fighting we want to continue negotiating we want to continue to arbitrate whatever it is we want to arbitrate like the uh, management the management of their union was able to just push that through regardless well that rule's gone now and there are like it is it it gives me a lot of hope at the very least for something starting when it comes to like there's the uh TDU the Teamsters for a Democratic Union which is a rank and fi- a movement of rank and file workers within the Teamsters who are looking to continue to push amendments at convention like this right. and there's uh UAWD Unite Unite All Workers for Democracy which is a rank and file movement from within the UAW and basically these groups are advocating for as much structural change that brings power to the bottom with the rank and file from within the major AFL-CIO or change to win affiliated unions and it's like that ha- not only is that in my in my you know whatever opinion is not only is that the future it's it has to be because there's a, i know too many people who organize with change to win affiliated or afl-cio affiliated unions who struggle as organizers within these organizations to get the there's a reason why staff unions from within Labor unions have been, you know, really picking up speed. There's there's right. getting to be, there's more and more and more of them. It's because, look, like it's not that we don't. The reason why we're here is because we want to organize labor unions. It's because we want to give power to workers. But we can't do that unless we can do that. Like, it, right. it, yeah, there's, exactly. there's a fundamental disconnect between what goes on at the top and then what the rank and file wants, needs and can accomplish. And there are there's movements from within these organizations that just give me at least some hope for things, you know, to, I mean, the Teamsters convention this year. There's a there's a notorious like gulch between what happens at the Teamsters convention and then what actually ends up happening in organizing and like, you know, after the convention. However, this just really feels, there's some stuff that's happening with the major unions. Teamsters is still, I think, what, the third biggest in the country, I think? Something Uh, like that, yeah, close. Around there, yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's there's a lot to be said about going back to basics and like essentially... recognizing how like there 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 is there is strategizing to be done around to paraphrase kim moody there is there is a strategy with the rank and file and it's it is it is it is both a tactic that we can use to get the things that we need at work and as well as a, a framework through which we can look at for those of us who have just kind of committed ourselves really drank the kool-aid of the labor movement i'm definitely what like you know like i am an absolute i'm absolutely one of those i right. I, I am in the cult so, uh, to, <laughs> i'm joking as a but union like, buster would say 
Yeah, I mean, like this, like if I've if I have truly committed myself to like, okay, my way to gain power for working class people will I I see everything come and and as a long time working stiff, everything comes and intersects at work. All of the struggles that we go through, all of the things that we, all of the change that we want to see, so much of it just comes straight to where we live and what we do for our job. And like, there is power to be had in recognizing that. They're, they're like even even people within labor unions, they are not going to have my best interest in mind all the time. And we can come up with a better strategy to gain more and gain more power and more things that we need than people who are disconnected from our day to day lives. And I just, you know, I just yeah. think it's it's really important. You know? Yeah, well, absolutely. and those, those rank and file movements are, are super important. And I don't know if this is directly related to the uh, the level of like more rank and file organizing that I've been seeing in the Teamsters, but like if you want an example of like what an empowered worker who understands what their rights are, uh, and you want to be able to see it happening in real time, like just follow Alex from Minion Death Cult on Twitter. Yeah, oh yeah. Because that guy fucking rocks. He's always posting yeah. shit like, "Here's what my boss did. Here's my grievance letter. Here's my grievance check." And he's posting yep. shit like, you know, they, they <laughs> sent him a message on his little thing and it's like, "Unfortunately, we have added routes for tomorrow and you are being forced into work." And he just responds back like, "Unfortunately, I am not available." <laughs> and like no, there, are pro- there are problems yeah. in the Teamsters like you said, but like even to just have that baseline of like, "I know that there is an institution that supports me and will back me up on the rights that I know that I have. That can be such a powerful platform for building, you know, further worker rights within that within that structure because like I'm I'm very skeptical. I have like really bad anarchist brain. I'm very skeptical of like any institution. I think I feel like they get off track really fast and really easy, but especially something that at least in like many many ways is like a multifaceted base of support for workers. There's always something fertile and 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 workable and and build there for for the labor movement to jump onto broadly. I think that one of the things that's leading us to this more rank and file movement is a lot of the push to go back to the classic, classic CIO method, which we, you know, well, everyone will say, oh, the unions were good back in the day. And even the union busters will say this. They'll say, oh, the unions were good back in the day, but now they're not any good. Well, I mean, there's there's a little bit of truth to that. And obviously, that's what union busters are there for. They're there to give you a grain of truth and then tell you to vote no, which obviously that's right. not what we're saying. We're, we're, we're saying that there is a grain of truth to that rank and file movement because that is where power comes from that is where you actually engage people you bring them into the democracy it's one of the most important things that a union is there for and and without that sort of method you are just having like you know a representative democracy like we have in the united states which we all know is working so well you know yeah well i I mean mean, it's like (laughs) the, the the union busters will try to be like look this union thing isn't working it's broken in such and such way and then their response is like okay you should just capitulate to the company and you should take your chances with the fucking company instead and it's like no we'll just unionize against the union and repeat as necessary that's dialectics baby like (laughs) you know (laughs) just turn that shit over on itself one more time so in our last story of the day Mm -hmm. we're going to be covering yet another form of organizing like i said we are doing the whole thing today uh yeah get your bingo cards out yeah. In uh, in Atlanta, there was an announcement of a houseless people's union that was designed that had a list of demands. They actually went on July 4th to City Hall with their demands 
Uh, I don't think it was a pretty, it was a really huge movement, uh, but there was enough people there that were that clearly knew what they were talking about and 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 were fighting for the rights of houseless people in Atlanta. Um, then, as expected, I mean, I was actually just talking to someone who is not super labor brained like any of us, and I was like, I'm gonna let you guess what happened to those people, and the answer is very clear: the police came down and repressed. They cracked down on these people and kicked them out. But I did want to make sure to bring this up because this is really important. Unions exist for this. This is basically a tenants union in that they are tenants of the of the space outside of homes. You know, the city. Yeah. Atlanta. They are tenants of Atlanta. Yeah. And and how this this sort of thing is really important to bring light to these issues and and what they actually do. I mean, the reason why the police cracked down on this was because they're like, we can't let these people think that they have any power. We have to, right. you know, and they were actually arrested. I don't know if anyone ended up in jail, but but these these people who were just, you know, occupying a space in a in a public government building. Uh, or maybe even outside. If all the pictures are from outside, right out, though, yeah, really, it's in front of the building. Yeah, uh, they they were they were cracked down on, and their 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 demands are very simple. It's really four. It's four four demands. They demand homes, health care, water, and a seat at the table, which is the, so such like basic demands to be able to talk to the houseless people about being houseless the they're ignored they are consistently told what's good for them instead of being right. asked what they need um and and we can go into this a little bit of the details i want to just go over what um the demands kind of outline because they have a little bit more detail on it so when it comes to the demand for homes uh with millions of dollars we spend on shelters and services we can house every unhoused person in the city the city should Convert vacant and city-owned properties into permanent homes for those who are unhoused. We demand the city invest uh, pandemic relief funds in long-term housing solutions. Mm-hmm. That incredibly reasonable. Uh, yeah. We demand health care. We demand primary care access so that we don't have to go to the emergency room every single time we need basic health care. Because without insurance, that's what ends up happening. They go to. Yeah. I mean, I used to valet right in front of an emergency room for over a year. And uh, a very large part of the people who come into the emergency room are unhoused or otherwise, you know, greatly disenfranchised. Um, uh, and what they are is they're put into the hospital. They're often told that there's nothing wrong with them even when there's something quite apparently wrong with them and then they are summarily booted out of the hospital um sometimes i mean rightfully upset you know yelling screaming crying whatever and there are always two police officers at the front doors to make sure that they are escorted off the premises uh, in yeah in a police van if if quote-unquote need be um so this is definitely this is a this is a um Uh, form of oppression and repression i've seen firsthand the next line in it is preventative care saves taxpayer money i mean right that's that's just true if you know anything about healthcare, preventative care is super important all unhoused people should have access to regular preventative medical care it's Mm -hmm. and yeah that's very true the demand for water the city controls the water department especially during this pandemic we need water to stay sanitary the city should guarantee showers bathrooms and hand washing stations for the unhoused people we demand a seat the city is busy talking to everyone except for us about what we need 
We deserve a seat at the table. We need to be consulted about the policies that will impact our lives. The shit, the sit, the, the shitty, <laughs> the city should follow our leadership. That is so true. That's the most important one, right? Because like, it's really I true. I imagine if you don't have a home and you see like the, the city's, you know, the media narrative and like the local news narrative about like, what, what are we going to do about the, the homeless population? It's like, why don't you fucking ask us? Why don't you fucking ask us what we need? Like what we need is like clean water, uh, a hand in the decision making process and an address so that we can like get a job or whatever else, you know? Absolutely. Uh, And it's a very, very cogent point that they bring up that like the city spends millions of dollars a year on homeless shelters and all manner of other Band-Aid solutions when simply solving the crisis of not giving of people without homes uh, would cost less money than that. But of course... The reasoning from the government is like, well, if we did that, then we'd have to give everyone a house who doesn't have one. And it's like, yeah, it would still probably be cheaper. You know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't see what the problem is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, I've said this many times on many podcasts, but if you look up the numbers, uh, and this is still true today, there are six times as many empty homes in this country as there are people without a home. It would be very, very easy to give people homes. Uh, without taking any away from anybody, you know. Yeah. And so you think about like when and during when, when during the Carter administration, when there was there was a declared homelessness crisis uh, in the United States, uh-huh. and the fraction the fra- it was a national cri- it was considered a national crisis, and it was a fraction of what the number is now. Housing costs have only gone up like gentrification in neighborhoods with working class people has only increased and continually displaced people. We have crises in terms of drug. I live in the state of Florida. I'm from a place that was called the ground zero of Florida's opioid crisis. And what do you know when there's a lack of necessary services to help people kick whatever it is that they've had that that they've ended up relying on or they've got hooked on because they got they got an injury and then they're, they're they're prohibitively costly medication that they got on they had they got addicted to it and then that for that they ended up going on and using other kinds of drugs or whatever well basically they end up homeless and like there's like it's it has this like there it is a the cognitive dissonance of like well this is just how it has to be i guess we just need to like you know like what was it like i I, what's your face caitlin jenner's running for governor was saying that we need to like basically round up the homeless people and put them on like like to basically like basically like it, it's liquidation basically essentially right. like round she them up and, for genocide she's a piece of shit yeah, yeah she's aw- she's awful and it, it what she said is exactly the mindset well it's either oh well we can't do anything about it because this is just like people just need to not have a place to live apparently like it would disrupt all of the great you know Freedom, I don't know. Like it, it's a level of cognitive <laughs> dissonance that could level the city of Los Angeles because, right. like, there, there, the, it is the most solvable and unnecessary problem that just people have accepted, and in the in like thirty years have decided that something that is like. It is precipitously worse. It has gotten it has increased to a level that should absolutely horrify everybody. And it was considered a national crisis when it was a fraction of the whole like when we had a fraction of houseless numbers that we do now. And it's so ridiculous that it can only be like speaking of capitalism brain like that's the only that's the only thing that can like 
continue this absolute just it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make yeah. any sense and it makes yeah. sense. it's well, homeowners this... association brain it's like yep. more concern with like uh the property values and like the nicety yes. and how how clean and tidy this area is than with the quality of life for the fucking human beings who live there yeah yes. and it and it always makes me go back to you know people want to do reforms i think that we should do land reform that is where we should be yeah. moving our reformism to, is we should be doing yeah. land reform. <laughs> yeah, I'm a reformist. Which one? Land reform. Oh, That's oh. Right. <laughs> People start to get nervous. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of getting nervous. Of memes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the spirit of having a little bit of a joke, uh, we just wanted to run over a few memes at the end of the episode like we tend to do to de-stress. Uh, and first off, we have uh, one that starts with a tweet from AOC, and it says, Hashtag abolish ICE means not having an agency that incarcerates children and sexually assaults women with impunity. It does not mean abolish deportation. And then, of course, like, what else would you have at the bottom but Hans Molman? Like, I was saying abolish deportation. (laughs) I meant abolish it. Yeah, yeah, How, like, weak do you have to be to not even commit to just, like... Why can't we halt? Halting deportation is also something that has just become it like it, a capitulation to the mean of like the uniquely cruel, maybe not uniquely, but in the United States, it sure feels that the uniquely cruel way that people treat mostly Latin American immigrants, but also immigrants from all over the world. Like you ha- like you immediately like this. is This is our problem is that we're just like it, it, it's like you get if someone like blows at you and you just collapse like someone looks at you and you crumple like a piece of tissue paper (laughs) yeah well and i mean like you can see people like aoc that could just gradually and gradually more and more caving to the demands of the quote-unquote moderate like establishment democrat like i don't want to talk too much shit on her because she does still have a few like very good takes and stands up for some really important things but overall like i can see her gradually sliding into what is eventually going to amount to conservatism well like i said before i mean rashida talib is one of the only people in the so-called squad that is really doing good stuff uh yeah consistently has much much better takes than yeah all of the other congress people yeah but we're this next one we're actually i love the name of the the screen name of this one big time socialist because it's almost a reference to a meme review that we had back in like episode three or four we're covering that weird right wing guy yeah yeah because he's like talking talking about k-pop and how bts stands for big time socialist or whatever yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but anyway uh they quoted or there they they tweeted um maybe the ocean fire is hungry and we gotta toss a few billionaires in as a snackrifice idk and i for one i love the word snackrifice that's yeah that's a good formento <laughs> yeah. yeah and this is also in reference to the um that pipeline that shot a fire pillar up through the gulf of mexico which is one of the wildest things that just terrifying yeah. photo under where ha- underwater column of fire is a thing i didn't think i would ever see photos of in real life and i'm yeah. not excited like i'm horror it's 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 lovecraftian right like at at the, at the risk of invoking that fucking racist like it's lovecraftian like it's yeah. like this otherworldly horror of yeah. capitalism but i mean this also reminds me of just like that video going around recently zuckerberg did for fourth of july where he's like on the weird like surf powered surfboard thing oh, waving the american flag I didn't see it. and i'm just like we should just we, we could just tip him right in like, <laughs> just kind of push him right is that yeah. this i saw that 
I saw those two things close together. That like faceless glob of human matter riding on whatever the thing he was and then the like just right over there off the coast of uh, into the in the gulf of mexico a literal pillar of fire coming up through the ocean and thought this is what it's like being in the belly of a dying empire isn't we, it yeah. we, this is this is what it feels like it's this just like ridiculous let's synthesize yeah. this let's combine yeah. these two <laughs> put your yeah. hands together right yeah, so yeah. actually almost in the exact same thing we have like a tiny snack comic right that's what this is yeah yeah it looks this is like tiny a snack tiny... yeah yeah um so there's this uh like obviously like corporate like blob bean thing with a top hat saying mm, yes yeah, sledging it up make that cash which is actually just like this waterway being polluted with a with a pipe dumping a bunch of sludge and then some little figure comes up and says excuse me why are you doing this the think of the world and you know simple and then the the um top hat thing just shoves them into the sludge uh of the of the water and says you down there, stop littering, which is the <laughs> peak, peak ecofash. Just like Yeah, this is like this is the same as that BP tweet from like last year, I think, where they're like, calculate your carbon footprint and see what you can do to help climate change. And I'm just like, <laughs> fuck, fuck BP, you, yeah. BP. Right. You like famous fucking oil spilling fucking Silence like, brand. I, yeah, there's not even yeah. words for that. And like, you know, you know anything about carbon footprint? Like that was a, literally an ad campaign dreamed up by, was it BP or was it Exxon? One of them. Uh, I, I, I know they spills. both did stuff like that. Like right. that the whole like, well, I mean, and like, and I don't blame anyone for not smelling like, like, like the corporate stench on that whole like, but remember when like sure. NB, NBC was like, turning the peacock green oh and it's all about like and it's just i remember seeing that and being like this is this is bad i know this is bad i can't exactly say why but i know that this is going to be yeah and it turns out yeah. it's just as usual this like corporate branding that's trying to place mm-hmm. like like it's just it's just all about you now see you're merely consuming wrong you have consumed <laughs> right, yeah. the wrong way yeah, you should go to the store and make better decisions next time, Mr. Consumer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh a lot of people Is don't it- know the three the three bell sounds in the NBC uh jingle ding ding dong. They stand for reduce, reuse, and recycle. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Oh, you know, honestly, what is it? Uh they they've stopped they it's not reduce it's uh they don't use reuse i don't know i was looking at a recycling thing that for my local city and they've actually cut the reuse part and they've changed it to like to rethink oh yeah that's what it was it was rethink they've gotten rid of reuse and they've gone to rethink which is like yeah i don't know i don't yeah if you if you reuse the if you reuse our stuff it's gonna we turns out it's gonna give you cancer so don't reuse (laughs) you can't reuse anything it's gonna explode if you do or something yeah yeah it's the same as those utility companies being like turn down your ac and do your part to help everyone out it's like holy crap yeah yeah does anybody know what this next one is a photo it looks like it's from a movie or something like that this is from the sopranos and uh it's it's in reference to that meme that was going 
around, not even a meme, like something from, I think it was from it the was White House. It was a genuine re- release, yeah. Or the New York Times or something like that, where they were like, uh, the average price of a July 4th cookout has gone down by 16 cents this year under the Biden administration. And I'm just like, <laughs> fucking, so, so my onion is 16 cents cheaper that I bought this year than it was last year. But anyway, so it's Tony Soprano smoking his cigar, and it says, when Joe Biden saves you 16 cents on your 4th of July cookout, and then it's him clutching his chest, and it's like, when you remember, he still owes you two grand. Uh, (laughs) Which is like, I like this, but also harping on like Joe Biden owing us money is starting to get old with me because it's just like we we should all fucking know by now he's never going to pay it. And we should be asking for more. That's right. uh, At the same time. Yeah, $2,000 every other month at the very least. Like, why did that yeah. stuff ever ever cut off? <laughs> yeah, 16 cents off of my Hebrew National hot dog makes me less likely to want to do a wood chipper for sure. <laughs> you know, like, gosh. Yeah, and this last You can bleep one- the threat of violence. If you <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah, it's... Anyway, this this uh, last one is actually a, a kind of a serious one, although it's like a cartoonized, like um, a Super Nintendo um, 16-bit. I think it's a, it's a Mega Man villain. I couldn't yeah, tell you maybe. for sure. It looks like a Mega Man villain, like yeah. an evil doctor. Right. But the, the text on this one is, you're not a alpha for thinking that people don't deserve their basic needs to be met for not meeting your concept of hard work you're just a shitty person and likely a class trader and whoa 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 i used to work 85 sometimes 110 hours a week at my last job okay (laughs) and i turned out fine it was actually good for me oh my god Yeah, that's that's exactly the kind of response I expect. I really like this because it's something that I've talked about before. I have some I am someone who has been uh, cited. And uh, this is this is not a uh, this it says, I think, nothing about me in any particularly remarkable way. But I'm grateful to have been someone who has been recognized on the Internet as I every once in a while people on like like who also make videos on YouTube or whatever are like ask for people who you think, who you think are some kind of a like positive example of some kind of masculinity. I'm very, very, it's very kind that people have, you know, for some reason think that that's me. Uh, but I get tagged in those kinds of things every once in a while. And I get asked about this sort of like presentations of masculinity. And like, cause I grew up with like, I, I come like my whole family, like I'm a gigantic nerd and I just come from a huge mm-hmm. family of literally just firefighters and people who are in building trades and stuff like that. Like not like very, very working class or as the blue collar, as they used to call it, whatever right. farmers, that kind of a thing, like from the Eastern part of Kentucky and Southern part, like top people who worked in like rubber factories and on tar fields and that kind of a thing. And what, if anything if i've learned anything about like exa- looking at myself and, and saying how do we recapture and sort of reconfigure those discourses around say like masculinity for example you could replace that with anything that's why this is so unremarkable but in this case i think about how like the most quote unquote alpha thing that you can do is not to be a complete prick and you know Imagine yourselves constantly like like jerking yourselves off by pulling, quote unquote, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and having complete disregard for all of the people around you. And why? And rather than being the person that what, what was always the most like positive idea of masculinity for me was being someone who people knew would come when they needed help. Right. And like because I'm the I'm the guy you call. 
honestly, I'll do my, like, I'll do my best to do whatever you need if you need me. And I do my best to try and be that kind of a person who like the example I always used to use when I was training people on how to be organizers is like, you want to be the person who like, when someone has a flat tire on the side of the road and they have no idea who to call, everyone is busy. It's the middle of the night. They go through their phone and they go and say like, yeah, he would come help me. Right. Like, and that, that good, that transcends gender. It should, that's, what's so special about that is that we use it as a means to transcend all of those gender discourses, all of those, like all of the boss crap that we get inundated with all mm-hmm. the time about how rise and grind culture, all of this, like not looking out for only for number one yourself, that sort of a thing. And we recognize that like the way to be a, like a good person and to be, as this meme is saying, quote unquote, alpha is to be the person who comes to the defense of other people is the and that's just that's the kind of values that i think like i think this is a great meme yeah and it Hell because yeah. it like is a it's confronts some of the worst crap that people themselves i feel bad when people have to deal with this and like they've taken this discourse upon themselves because their family you know got caught up in like this ex- individualism american exceptionalism that goes straight down to who we are and the individual choices that we make fuck right. all that like, I don't even think you as a person, listener or whomever, deserve to have to deal with that and to extract that from your life. That makes me I feel bad for people who have to struggle with it. Right. But it does present such an interesting opportunity for us to just like, no, screw that. I like my, my transcendent individuality doesn't do shit besides keep me alone and atomized from people who not only really need me, but who always make me better. Right. Well, and it's, it's you like know, a- special to think about. It's a reflection, and I think what you said is really great because uh, it, it tackles the the implicit, the unspoken uh, expectation of masculinity, at least in the culture of the United States, that it's always going to be based on some kind of repression, some kind of yes. closed-offedness, some kind of like yeah. I'm going to go be individual, and you need to go be individual on your own, and like I'm, and then there's like a level of pride, like oh, I got fully atomized, I went and grounded out, I worked harder <laughs> than anybody else, and I still had time to go fishing afterwards. It's like you can you can fight for you, your own, and your you know fellow human beings' rights. You can be emotional open and vulnerable and you can like have a really like deep and genuine connection with people and you can still go fishing later if you want yeah. to you can still like, chop down a tree or, or, yeah like are, are, aren't you lonely don't you doesn't that not like when you really look at yourself do you not just go oh all that makes me feel bad yeah like yeah all right like like are you not just lonely and are you not tired of being lonely i feel like so many dudes like especially older uh dudes in the united states they get to this point where they're like i have everything like i have financial security i have my life sorted out i have a career whatever a house and then they're just like but i feel terrible all the time and i'm constantly pissed off it's like yeah because the path that you chose was one of deliberately isolating yourself from other people over and over again as this way of like tacking towards a few specific goals that you had and just because you reached those goals doesn't mean that you're going to be happy you've ignored a really vital and enormous part of your life to get there wow this meme fucking rocks yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well we'll end it there everybody (laughs) yeah yeah so i wanted to give you an opportunity kyle to plug anything that you wanted to plug here at the end of the episode sure yeah you can follow me on twitter at labor kyle and uh you can go i got a youtube channel where I like to post about all kinds of stuff. I do like, I'm a historian by training and I like to talk a lot about what it means to be a worker and class consciousness and also 
like completely ridiculous culture and why I think it's ridiculous. It's this balance of vegetables and dessert that I strike that I like to think that it does okay for myself. I, I put out a video recently about uh, the production of class consciousness and how there's hope and solidarity with other people. It's very, I've been making some stuff recently that's really just kind of coming straight from my heart and it's been very rewarding. And if anyone wants to check that out, you're welcome to, I, you know, you're welcome on all my platforms, of course. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I just watched the video where you did like a, an ideological rundown of Pitch Perfect and I <laughs> really, really fucking enjoyed it. I thought it was awesome. Thank you. That one was very fun. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to support uh, Kyle, go check that stuff out. If you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and give us $5 a month. You get some extra episodes. Yeah, there's also some uh, older episodes that are still on the on the Patreon. Join our Discord. That's where we're actually going to dump all these memes, and you're actually going to get to see that cool, you know, tough guy in the real, like the real good tough guy that makes these these guys here to talk about <laughs> how much they love people. I love that, and yeah. uh, you know, get, give 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 good reviews to Kyle and 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 us and all that stuff. Follow John on uh, Twitter at Facebook Villain and check out his other podcast, Beep Beep Blood. As Dan will be back next week, uh, but I did I do know that Red Game Table just released a new episode, so check out Dan on that. And we will see you next time. Remember, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity.